Hi, I'm Paul, and this is ARCnex Sessions, episode 143. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite regulars, Fred Sharman. Fred currently teaches architecture and urban design at Morgan State University's School of Architecture and Planning and is the principal and co-founder of the Working Group on Adaptive Systems. What brings him on today's show is his just-released new book, Space Settlements. The 400-page paperback contains a visually stunning collection of designs for space colonies from the mid-70s, including iconic artwork and comparison studies of 20th and 21st century architecture projects. Our conversation talks about his research leading up to the book, the process of writing the book, and the fascinating stories discovered along the way. So, Fred, it's great having you back on the show. Thanks for having me. So maybe you can uh, fill us in on what you've been up to since we've last heard from you. Obviously, you've, you've got a new book out, which has sparked your return to our show. But what else has been going on in your life and teaching and working? What was the last time I was on this show? Was it the Smart Cities? Was it to talk about Smart Cities? I'm not sure. I, I can't remember that. Well, in, in the past year, this, this, was, this was actually a pretty eventful year. In the past year, I got married. Oh, I, congratulations. I earned tenure and both within, you know, because we in academia, we count the years as the academic year. So uh, I also finished the book and then the book came out. So those are all uh, pretty big deals for, for a pretty eventful year. Yeah. That is amazing. So you're a full on grown up now. I guess so. I can stop pretending. Yeah. Are you, um, <laughs> I, I don't want to embarrass you. No, no judgment at all, but are you, you're registered, right? You're a registered architect. I'm not, but within the past two years, I took uh, three of the five exams. I, I got in under, um, what was it, uh, version four, and then uh, the changeover to version five. I might have that wrong, maybe five to six, but I got a, I got the three under the old system, and then so I still have yet to take the two under the new system. I knew you were working on it. Yeah. I just couldn't remember if you'd done it or not, but you'll get yeah. there. So don't call me an architect with a capital A, or else you know somebody will come after me and or you. <laughs> we'll, all, we'll all end up in jail. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, who cares? So yeah, awesome. You uh you you have a book. It's amazing. I I'm just I'm so excited that uh, that you're able to be here and talk about it. And and I will say I'm seeing a lot of people on social media talking about it and read quite a few different reviews. I did not get my copy unfortunately early enough, so I haven't seen it yet, but I one of the reviews was that that I saw said that it's just visually beautiful. So tell it like yeah, give us a sort of background on on how the book got started and Explain what the book is for people who don't know yet. Actually, can we start even further back and, and talk about how how you kind of got into, because space has been a recurring theme with with your work for many years now. Maybe we can talk about how how that interest first uh, started. I think that, you know, I, I think I can be honest about this this kind of stuff. And this is kind of what the what the ongoing work is about, is that I've always seen the design world, architecture and urban design especially, as as being sort of almost continuous with the way we think about the future, right? So science fiction and space science, I think, have all these interconnections with the way we think about cities and the way we think about buildings. And a lot of what I've been able to do recently that I've been lucky to be able to do is to kind of, with the the, the kind of tools that we get in school and in, in design culture and all these things, to go back and say, what was, you know, all that stuff that, that all of us, you know, we're into as kids, the sort of sense of wonder that comes with, with thinking about the future and thinking about, you know, scale, which is really what like space, outer space, one of the things that's, that's exciting about is the big scale. Like, what was that? What was that about? And how can I take these tools that I now have as a designer and as, as a member of sort of architecture culture and, 
and as an academic and really trying to look at this stuff with fresher eyes and look a little bit past that kind of like, whoa, that's super cool. I love Star Trek or Star Wars or, or Ursula Le Guin and, and really say like, what, how, how do these effects work? And so not only, you know, does, do I think that architecture and urban design have this unacknowledged debt to science fiction? They also have a lot to offer back to it because as designers, we can apply our kind of critical frameworks to that stuff, which is a huge part of our culture. We were just talking about utopia and dystopia. Architecture has always been tied in with, with these, with these questions, these ways of imagining space. So that's really like kind of, a, you know, it's a, to use a superhero term, that's kind of like my origin story for this material is, is going back and, and wanting to this sense of wonder that you get out of something that like looks really cool and exciting when you're a kid. So how did this, this book come out of that investigation? So yeah, the, the book was, um, yeah, more, more specifically, the, the book came out of, as I was sort of re reinterpreting and re-inventorying all this, um, cultural material that I've always been so fascinated with, I kept coming back to this moment in the mid seventies, which was before I was born. I was born in 1977 to date myself when this big scale, almost science fictional speculation was still kind of possible in the mainstream of space science in NASA. And so just sort of just trying to trace the lineage of these images that I had always seen pop up in different places and in the work of Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog and books that that my parents are ex-hippies and they used to always have um, Whole Earth Catalog stuff lying around the house. And they always also used to have like books about like pop futurism that would be like, you know, your future in space and the kids' whole future catalog is, is one book that was really influential to me. But in the UK, they have these books that the Osborne Book of the Future series that just, they have these illustrations about like, here's, you know, the future of communication in the next 20 years, the future of travel, what our houses will be like. And one of the ideas that kept the continually resurfaces in these books is that we're going to build these giant cities in space. And it's different from the narrative about building a city on the moon or building a city on Mars, and that these cities in space would be free-floating in independent orbits, and they would spin for artificial gravity, you know, and that they would be like, instead of this sort of submarine-style space station kind of spatial mode, where you have just capsule and capsule and capsule or compartment, 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 like a submarine. These would be these big, big open landscapes, almost like new ground that's wrapped into these shapes, cylinders, toruses, and uh, spheres. And then that new ground would be filled with basically architecture, buildings and cities, and landscapes. And that it would be these sort of miniature inside-out planets. And what I found was that Really, the kind of origin story for that idea is this 1975 exercise that was undertaken at the NASA Ames Research Center, which happens to be right across the street from the current Google campus. So it's in Silicon Valley where this other future was imagined, which is another kind of um, kind of convergence that I found really interesting because, you know, as we were talking about the smart city stuff in previous uh, episodes of the podcast, this was in, in the 1970s. This was a kind of early prefiguration of some of those ideas that you could create a brand new world where everything was made from scratch, where everything was kind of closed and, you know, kind of, you know, sealed in some way or another. But it would be this opportunity for us, whoever us is, us as designers, you know, in kind of our world 
to finally get it all right because you didn't have to deal with any previous existing conditions and you can use technology to solve every problem. So there's that convergence as well. So the book is really about, the book is called Space Settlements and it's really about all the kind of cool, wow, look at this, isn't this crazy to think about aspects of that idea, but also it's it's about being you know pretty clear-eyed about bringing those critical contexts and those critical frameworks that we have as designers to these ideas and viewing them as real architectural and urban proposals and critiquing them as such. But it's also about how this idea of Lydia Calipoliti has a, a, another great book out right now called Closed Worlds. It's about, and this book is in kinship with her book, I think, in a lot of ways, because it's about that dream of creating a brand new closed world from scratch, where for once we can use technology to get everything right. So, okay, th- this is maybe a, a distinction that is difficult, but you mentioned that it's sort of a, a whole world, but turned inside out. And that this studies about going to other places seem to sort of offer this open way, open world of living. What's bringing this up is that the, another book that's come up recently, and I'm sure you've probably seen it or read it, is Amanda Colson Hurley's book on um, suburban utopias. Radical suburbs. Radical suburbs, yeah. yes. Yeah. So how much of the, and I read that book, and thinking about the the sort of notion of looking for utopia, is did these space settlement ideas come out, were they created in search of a utopia or were they in search of just being able to continue what we're doing already, but in another place? You know, is there a radical remaking of the society for these places in space or is it really just, you know, and I think when I think about Jeff Bezos, maybe the answer is, oh, we're fucking up this planet so much that we need to build a new place. Mm-hmm. But what these, the spring, the, the, the wellspring of this, where it came from, was the origin an idea of recreating society or was it more of just a, you know, we're going to have to be able to rebuild somewhere else? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's really the core of, that's really the core of the project kind of circles, circles around that, the, the space on the project and kind of the book too. And it, it turns out to be a little from column A, a little from column B. And this, one of the things that, for me, is, is really fascinating about this moment in culture is you have the sort of the end of the countercultural experiment of the 1960s and a little bit of the hangover from it into the 70s. And you also have this like new, on the one hand, environmental consciousness, but on the other hand, this fear that comes along with that, that we, we, you know, in this case being Western society, Western technological society specifically, we're going to run out of everything that we needed to keep expanding. The Club of Rome produced their, they, they put out their, yeah, but, so the Club of Rome is um, a group of politicians, economists, scientists that in the early 1970s, they really wanted to, to undertake a comprehensive study of just how much sort of resources are at hand, what are current trends in resource consumption in an industry, what are current trends in food consumption, and lay population on top of that. And apply early, you know, for the time sophisticated, but not without its limitations, early computer modeling to think about how all that stuff interacted. So they ran these sort of simulations that they called the world models. And they kept coming back to the same result, which is that pollution is going to outstrip all available space to put it, that food production will not be able to um, grow as fast as population, and that everything would crash within. It, this time, you know, in 1975, or in, sorry, I think it's uh, 72 is Club of Rome's publication. But within 100 years, everything that we sort of think of as society or civilization would crash, would, would collapse. 
And these books were really popular. I mean, they're so, it's like Alvin Toffler's uh, Future Shock, which I also have a copy of here on my desk. You can't go into a thrift store today in North America without finding a copy of The Club of Rome's Limits to Growth, their popular paperback that they publish this stuff in, and Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. And they're both about this radically disruptive change that was coming, or that was, that was, we're seeing the beginning of in the 1970s. So part of the space settlement project, as articulated by its, its main sort of protagonist, a, a physicist named Gerard O'Neill, part of the space settlement project was about getting out from under those limits to growth. He took seriously the Club of Rome's predictions and, and several points in the literature that he published and in his testimony before Congress in 1975. He seeks to directly refute their conclusions that growth should be limited by design, by the redesign of society itself, in order for human survival to be ensured. He says, no, we don't need to limit growth if we go off into space. So it's literally, on the one hand, this proposal that directly addresses the ecological crisis by saying, we, we don't have to change our lifestyle or our basic approach to things like resources and extraction and expansion of GDP or industrial base. If we just do it elsewhere, if we just get off the planet and let let sort of capitalism, technological capitalism, have a free reign off-world in orbit. So it's like completely unironic, like we don't have to change our life. But then on the other hand, there are these countercultural elements that are mixed in with the project in general. Stuart Brand was a really early supporter, both a cultural supporter and a monetary supporter through some of his foundation work of Gerard O'Neill's space settlement proposals. So a lot of people who are involved with the project were also invested in this in this kind of new place for experimental lifestyle development, new space for new political systems or new economic systems, new ways of life. So both those things are bound up in, in this kind of dialectic in this project, the new and the continuation of the old. Phil, can you talk a little bit about NASA's role in this, if any? And one of the things I'm, I'm thinking about is that you know, the time frame that you're talking about, the mid-70s, it's actually the winding down of the of the yeah. of moon missions. So it seems like a natural extension or evolution to expand NASA's, you know, uh, model to do this next step. Is that kind of uh, in line with this as well? Yeah, that's pretty explicit, too, in, in the project's original literature. It was this it was this moment where all the things that we're seeing the 50th anniversary of, right, this, the space nostalgia is, is really impossible to escape right now in the media. That was 69. By 75, the uh, moon landings were done, pretty much. I think in the early 70s, I think in 75, there was still, uh, I think Skylab was still up in the first part of 1975, but that was really, that was really it for the, the, the last sort of big vision, big project and more or less concluded. And I think that people were recognizing that like, wow, that was the really successful implementation of something that was totally visionary. Sure. It had a lot of interconnections and a lot of reasons for happening, including the cold war and political overtones, but it had been the conclusion of a really visionary project that at its beginning, anyone would have thought was, uh, was hardly possible. So NASA was looking around for like, what's sort of the next big visionary project. The space shuttle was on the boards and it was still, I, I think it's the first shuttle didn't launch until um, 81, but it, its design was pretty much finalized. So they knew they were going to have 
what they thought they were going to have, a cheap and fairly cheap and reliable sort of space truck. So one of the things that the project depended on was to use this space space truck to bootstrap the project, to bootstrap a huge industrial base in outer space. And so the space shuttle was supposed to bring up the first round of materials. And from there, the project was supposed to start mining the moon for the next round of stuff to get to build even more and more of these habitats as they went. So as we know, sort of how it happened was very different. The political will for a next big project never really materialized. The money certainly didn't. Um, NASA's budget fell after the mid-70s pretty steadily. And the shuttle itself didn't turn out to be so economically efficient to use regularly either. Do you think that, um, and this is probably the cynic in me, um, but the fact that there wasn't really any capacity for vision, and and probably in a good way, hopefully, for uh, the defense agencies to kind of see a natural reason for, because it's pretty obvious that the the, the missile, uh, the um, rocket program and Apollo and everything else was really a, a had a strong connection to the military industrial complex. There wasn't yeah. any any connection with settlements because that's not what the military does. They're not interested in building uh, mm-hmm. space settlements or extending uh, life off the planet. They're interested in what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was unable to to tease out any direct connection to defense industries other than those secondary connections that you talk about where the whole sort of rocket you know industry is developed out of rockets to kill people. But that said, I think there's a there's a whole unexplored branch of the project there somewhere because one of the the main thing that that the people who lived in these habitats were um, supposed to do was to build huge solar-powered energy satellites that would, you know, be able to take advantage of 24-hour sunlight without an atmosphere in the way and generate massive amounts of electricity for domestic use, mostly for use on the planet. So it'll be beamed down as microwaves. And I think it's, a, it's not a huge leap, right, to think of the uh, potentials of technology like that for weaponry. Not only you, well, and, and again, the language in, in Gerard O'Neill's, again, testimony to Congress is pretty explicit about we're going to put the Middle East out of business in terms of their, their control of the primary sources of energy that the industrial world was powered by. The energy crisis of 72 and 73 had also just happened on everybody's mind. So as one of my favorite science fiction writers, Charlie Strauss, talks about how any any sort of power generation scheme is just a weapon by another name. So if you can if you can move around vast amounts of energy, you can use it to run cars and houses and factories, or you can use it to destroy stuff. And I think a, an orbital microwave death ray is uh that seems like it could have other uses than just um, than just electrical distribution. Well, it's like uh, <laughs> in Dune, uh, he who controls the spice controls the universe, or something yeah. like that. Right. <laughs> who controls he, the energy? Controls controls the and energy. Stuart Brand, you know, actually thought they were going to hand the keys to these things over to the hippies. So um, <laughs> yeah. that, that, there's a whole you know alternative history that uh, could have played out that way too. Yeah, there's so much. There's so many directions this all goes. I had never until recently realized how closely tied the hippie movement and these ideas of space utopias were. They really are closely together. First, I want to ask Paul and Ken, do you guys remember when Skylab was falling out of the sky? Because Yeah, they, yes, in the late totally 70s, right? I mean, I have a deep memory of it, but but um, Fred, you you were too young. To, do you remember or do you know when it was? Was it 79, Donna? Like I mean, it might have been 79. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Because I, I seem to connect it to the uh, Iran hostage. I remember yeah. that right around the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was at summer camp that summer and um, we were terrified it was going to fall on us. Like, wait, it was a yeah. realistic fear yeah. for us, yeah. what, nine, 10 year olds at that point that Skylab was going to hit us. Of course it was. So uh, when I, when you mentioned Skylab and um, it just made me think of that, that space is not always without its fears or without its, you know, terrors. And so for me, on a much more existential level, I have to raise the question of colonization and, you know, going out and destroying other places to make them like we are. That that idea scares me. And I, I think there's there was I, I as I said, I have not read the book yet, but I think you talk a little about this, this sort of debating over whether we're doing space colonies or are we just doing space cities? So can you talk a little about colonization? as a destructive force, which is how I see it. <laughs> and maybe. Totally. Yeah. The, and, and it's, the, you know, again, funnily enough that people were talking and debating about the use of language and the ideas and associations, different words brought up in really direct terms back then. Uh, at one point, Stuart Brand says that he had heard that the state department issued a directive to NASA to stop calling these things space colonies. And again, this is, this is 1975. A lot of the material about this project was published in 76 and 77. So this is the American Bicentennial. And that's foremost in everybody's minds, too, this reassessment of the American colonial project and how that had played out. And Stuart Brand just, just turns right around and, and doubles down on the term colonies. So some, some people might be unhappy with it, but he says something like uh, uh, he hopes that Using that term can remind us of everything that went well and everything that went badly in previous colonial projects, which is a little bit of a weird place to go right away. But he also says, and anyway, it's it's not it's not really that bad because there are no space natives to displace. And that for me is a really sort of telling opening into how people think about what colonial projects really are, because it's so much more than just somebody showing up in a boat with a gun and saying, I own your land now. You have to move or you have to change or we're going to kill you. There's so much more going on than that. It's it's the colonialism is the kind of breaking apart of whole worlds and the putting back together of them in ways that can create all kinds of unpredictable second order effects and in ways that have all kinds of first order kind of direct exploitive effects on the people who are the pieces being put back together. You know, colonization is resource exploitation. Colonization is the movement of diseases around into populations of people that had never encountered them before. Colonization is, is the mobilization of third-party workforces, like in the colonization of the American continent, dependent on the enslavement of African peoples. So it's not just displacement. It's so many other destructive things. And I think that's something that we do best to keep foremost in our minds as we think about the terminology, but also the methodology of any scheme for exploring what we think of as open territory, like outer space. You know, I listen to a, a science podcast and I read some stuff about colonization of space. And I, I, I have to say I'm very wary of it. I really, to me, it, the, the notion that comes is this one of destruct, de exploitation of, um, of resources that we really should not have a right to. But it also puts me in the mind of your one of your previous projects. And I, I'm expecting either a very humorous answer or a very smart one or probably both from you, because I know you've actually thought about this. You did an earlier project called NASA, the Non-Autonomous Space Agent. 
sea. Is that right? Non-human autonomous space. Non-human autonomous space, in which you, you conjectured about manatees and chickens living in outer space. If we go to outer space, are we, as humans, is it within our rights to bring animals to outer space too? Like, should we be able to bring a cow into space? Or does that just, you know, take the animal so far away from its what you would think of as its autonomy, that we should not do that. I I think there's a real ethical quandary there. Yeah. Well, you know, with a lot of these things, I think, you know, one of of the first people to, one of the first architects they pulled in on this project was Ludwig Glazer, who was the architecture curator at MoMA. And he showed up at an early conference and he says, I don't have any answers for you. I just have a catalog of questions. And I think none of these things are going to get answered. None of these questions are going to get answered today or next decade. But the, it's it's important to get right at these kind of thorny questions. Like, do we have, you know, what what are the rights and responsibilities of bringing other creatures into space? And we've already we've always brought other creatures into space. The first, you know, like like uh, whose mission was not designed to be survivable on purpose. There's there's lettuce up there. We're designing not just habitats or worlds for humans. You have to design the world for the lettuce or the world for the dog, or the dog's not going to survive. And one of the, you know, but on the other hand, I'm also a reader and a fan of Michael Pollan, who talks about the way plants especially seem to make these kind of deals with humans, where the potato has kind of made it implicitly by by allowing us to change its genome or by changing its genome. It's entered into this relationship with us where where we, we do owe certain things to each other. The potato owes certain things to us. We owe certain things to the potato and we proliferate the potato all over the world. And I think that's one of the reasons why in that in that project, and it's a it's a speculative design, you know, kind of not totally serious, but intended to be, you know, a little bit critical and raise these questions. And that project, that's why I, I was I've always been fascinated with chickens and I've, I've, I've raised <laughs> chickens, as I know you have too. Donna. I have them still, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Is that the chickens have kind of made the similar deal with humans, right? We've, we've entered into this long-term relationship where there's an exchange of everything, right? We create worlds for chickens. And if there is, if there is ever is a first bird on Mars, it's almost guaranteed the first bird will be a chicken. So sure, you know, that individual chicken may have a, a difficult time of it, but the chicken deno- genome has hitched a ride to another planet that happens, which is really fascinating to me too. And I, it, there's a question of, of responsibility to individuals and responsibility to other beings. And I think that's, that's kind of beautiful if we can make a world for a chicken on another planet or, or in orbit. It's kind of terrible as well. And, and it's important to, to catalog these questions. <laughs> There's so many millions of questions, and most of the questions that I'm thinking about are rooted in what we've seen and experienced here on this on this planet. And when I think about a city in space or a colony or what have you, with some minor examples, I mean, China is, seems to be building cities out of whole cloth without you know a natural development. They just are just creating a city in a place where there was none. And and that's not typically how cities are created. They're usually built up over over time, and you know, when I think about this happening and thinking about Bezos, it really, I mean, either we have one individual doing something on a massive scale, or we have one country. It seems that 
there aren't countries that get together collaboratively and build things of this kind of uh, of this nature. It, it either is a country that does it on its own or it's a it's an individual who will do it on its own. And by by rights, that entity or whatever it is, country or person will have ownership and then create essentially uh, construct borders. I think about the hard realities that exist on this planet and the things that we as a society won't even address because all of a sudden words, things that we should be talking about, like end of life and what is what is a va- what is value in, in, in extending the life of someone who is draining those resources from those who desperately need it. And it could turn it in turn just that 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 really honest discussion we need to have gets turned into some political buzzword and it gets called death panels. And I'm curious, how do we start considering just even, I mean, this is such a deeply complex idea. It's beyond anything I think anyone is really thinking about. I mean, I think on some level, yes, but what is, what is the kind of massive, I mean, Bezos is one person. I mean, <laughs> and I, I've been I've been down to that. I've been past his factory down in uh, down in Florida, his space, Florida, his, his space gig down there in Florida. I mean, is it within the realm of possibility? I mean, I know part of this is kind of in science fiction, but a lot of it is based in sure. science, some measure of science fact, because people are actually thinking about it seriously. Is there any way we can demonstrably con- conceive of a plan where people can actually work together to create something that is the benefit of all humanity? Or is this just going to be a, an individual kind of uh, endeavor that we get to plant a flag in the middle of space and call it ours, or Bezos gets to put an Amazon a Dropbox in, in the middle of space? I think these are, these are also really fraught um, questions, because I think a lot about the, the period that, that, you know, we in, in architecture lived through in, in 2007, 2008, 2009, where, where China was building incredibly rapidly, not only these sort of cities from scratch, but all the radical architecture, all the stuff of the magazines was, was all in China. And architects have that fraught relationship with autocracy. You know, we, architects tend to appreciate the decisive decision maker who also has the power to get the decisions implemented. And I think that led, especially during the financial crisis, that led a lot of Western architects to work in China. And seeing, you know, the confluence of, in in 2008, in China, the Forbidden City, which was a city created from scratch, you know, in, I'm going to get the the date wrong, so I won't even try to guess it, but it it was a capital created by fiat inland from the older capitals of, of, uh, Han China, and it did not evolve, you know, organically, the core of, of Beijing. And the, to, to then see in 2008, things like the um, CCTV building, which was just being completed, it was before the fire in the TVCC building and before the Chinese Olympics. So to see the Olympic site at that point too, and then to go and visit the, the now known as Chinese ghost city of, of Ordos, Dongsheng, and see how at a micro scale, you know, they're trying to create this this arts district from scratch in collaboration with Ai Weiwei and a hundred architects from around the world. And that was for me an experience that I'm still processing because you know, people, other other architects who were there that I was with were saying things like, if China can do this, they can do anything. And it really was the the attempt to, you know, something like 
the Forbidden City, which is closed, of course, and and, and Hermetic now open to Taurus and everything. Not forbidden anymore. But then some, you know, another structure like CCTV, which was meant to be by its design open, right? This was this was sort of Kulhas's um, trick that that he thought he could his his sort of Trojan horse that he thought he could offer to Chinese media and Chinese society that this openness of this structure that was like a window and this closed loop would create would create shared culture and would create opportunities for multiple viewpoints to combine so that the openness of the architecture would open up Chinese media, um, which is state control. And then the Ordos project, which was supposed to be open in terms of this diversity of, of inviting 100 architects from every continent, not Antarctica, but every other continent to, to experiment and to have full, full free reign to experiment with somebody writing a check for whatever he proposed. None of it worked. Right. I mean, none, none of it, none of it actually worked. Architects thought they could play with political autocracy and through form and spatial organization, change the social structure. How'd that, how'd that work out for you guys? It, it was a failure in, in every sense, at least as far as the architects had stated agenda was concerned. And then now, and I think what, 2016, you have the uh, Chinese president declaring, okay, we're, we're going to do no more weird architecture in China, no more weird Western architecture. So, there's just so many ways to screw it up. And there, there's so many people in the design disciplines from Le Corbusier to, um, to L'Enfant to, um, I mean, you name it. We, we have such a poor track record for collaborating with politics and trying to bring an agenda to the, t- to the table that never seems to quite make it. So in that respect, I, I am, it's hard to do a bottom up organic, you know, or, or natural development of a habitat that by its very nature needs to be closed. So there's something there that I think is going to be also quite interesting to see play out. And I, I think we really will see, I think we really will see things play out, you know, within the, by the close of the century, I think we'll see a lot more people living in space and we'll see ambitions towards creating full-time human presence. If we, if we're not already at the, at the beginning of that thin end of the wedge, how that plays out, is uh, it's going to be really fascinating to watch. Right? The other end of the extreme, if I could just real quick be optimistic, is the International Space Station, which is a model for international cooperation. And the key there is not this big open figure or this sort of petting zoo of, of architectural big funny objects. It's the module. So if you design a connection that allows module to connect to module, then you can get a capsule from the ESA. You can get a capsule from Japan Space Agency. You can get several capsules from Roscosmos in Russia, several capsules from the American Space Program. And you can all sort of put it together like Legos. And it does create this kind of um, other model for a spatial organizational structure, but also political openness and collaboration that's kind of cool and kind of um, inspiring. Fred, the the images in this book are are just stunning um i'm I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the process that you went through to to source these images and um, did you have any difficulty obtaining um, the rights to to use any of these images we had such an amazing team on this book i'm, I'm just i'm really still amazed at, and humbled by how lucky i got as a first-time author to work with the people I got to work with on this. Um, and this was from the people at Columbia University Press? Is that? This is uh, Columbia Books and Architecture in the City. And the two co-editors are Jesse Connick and James Graham, who were just at everything from big picture level to detail level to things like sourcing these images. They were 
on top of it. And the book has has over 200 images and wrangling that is, was a real challenge. We had uh, the designer is Scott Vanderzee and he's responsible for sort of coming up with a visual system that organizes that. So he has this, what he calls the navigation system, which are these sort of capsule bubbles that point you to other places and always send you somewhere else, like footnotes or image notes. Whenever an image appears more than once, there's always a reference to where to find a bigger version of it. And then the image editors did, a, a, I just, they, they accomplished an inconceivable task, which is getting and organizing the rights to uh, most of these things. We were lucky in the, the core, and this is kind of my pitch. I, I feel bad about this in retrospect for everybody else who had to work on this because my pitch was, hey, it's great. All these are in the public domain because they were made by NASA. And it turns out only these 13 core images, which were painted by these two painters, Don Davis and Rick Goodis, only these 13 core images are in the public domain. Everything else that supported it, in order to make this argument about the existence of these things in this network of visual culture, design culture, science fiction culture. We really had to pull in things from so many sources and the uh, people I got to work with did such an excellent job that I almost barely had to deal with that. I just sort of sent them, you know, blurry JPEGs that I pulled off the web and saying, can we find this? Can we get the rights to this? And they're like, sure. And a second later, you know, or two, two weeks later, they have a high res scan from the Le Corbusier Foundation, you know, with on the original paper. And they're like, is this okay? I'm like, yeah, that, that's the Radiant City. That that'll do. That's great. Wow. Were there any images that you that you were not able to use that you really wanted to use? The only one, the only one was a, a, a great image that I really loved of a Moshe Softy project called Cold Spring Newtown. That's here in Baltimore. It's it's three miles from my house. It's on my running route. And um it is a post uh habitat, post habitat sixty seven uh megastructure. The only phase one was built, but it was gonna be this massive thing that would have filled the whole stream valley in Baltimore. Um, there's one image that exists on the web that Safi's office could not locate in their in their archives, unfortunately. They provided another one. They were very gracious about the whole thing. It was, they were great to work with. But I wish we could have gotten this one section. And honestly, I can say that's really it. And I, I was able to to you know talk with some of the painters like John Lomberg, who um, did a lot of painting for uh, Cosmos for Carl Sagan's book and TV show. And he was really gracious to let us use his stuff. Of course, the two main painters, Don Davis and Rick Goodis, I got to go visit both of their studios and interview them. And then as the kind of, as the total kicker, just when we were almost done, we got word that our application for funding to the Graham Foundation had been approved. And with that, we were able to access the artist's archives and sketchbooks. So the uh, tail end of the book is something we scrambled to assemble. It's a image appendix, but it's really a selection of work from these two artists' sketchbooks that, that have not appeared in publication previously. And that um, we're really grateful, especially to the Graham Foundation, for the ability to um, have included those. I don't know if it's just because I'm such a sucker for this vintage space style of, of graphics and, and, uh, and illustration, but it seems to me that the the way that artists and scientists have been visualizing space colonies space settlement is so much less interesting than it was back back in the 70s do you agree with that and if so do you think that that is like a reflection on on maybe um a lack of a lack of kind of creative visionary outlook on on space exploration due to maybe kind of pragmatic issues that we're realizing that we're having to face now? Or do you think that, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think it's not just, you know, call it 
call it speculative futurism or call it um, call it science fiction. It's it's not just that. There's something endemic in design and visual culture in general that's that's kind of stalled right now. I think that designers have have lost the ability to or, or are not concerned with developing the ability to think in future forward terms visually. And you see that in, in mainstream architectural culture and this kind of return to you know, maybe it's fading now, but a kind of a resurgence of interest in postmodernism. And on the one hand, postmodernism within, call it academic architecture culture. But on the other hand, you know, what I think of in, in mass culture, or mass design culture is trad stuff. So, you know, especially, especially as society gets more conservative politically, anti-modernism manifests as nostalgia for what people see as traditional architecture, which is really just a snapshot of how architecture is just developing all the time, as we know. But it's associated with nationalism and it's associated with conservatism in mass culture, especially. There's something going on in culture right now that, that, that avoids thinking about the new and the future and the possible in political terms and social terms and in visual terms. And I think it's all tied together. So even, you know, when Bezos and, and these came out, Jeff Bezos's proposal for for almost a sort of carbon copy of this project came out just as the book was was being sent from the warehouse. So we didn't get to incorporate this, but it's too perfect. Jeff Bezos is sort of redux of the O'Neill cylinders and the Stanford Tauruses are literally pastiche of like ancient Florence and the and a, a red barn on a farm. And sure there is this sort of high-tech green kind of skyline of a, a city like Singapore. But that part is, it, it's all so, it's all such weak stuff. And it's all, it's its literally assembled by means of Photoshop rather than designed from scratch in the way that a lot of the stuff from the 70s was. And of course, the 70s was also its own time of counter-revolution, a return to conservatism. It was the Nixon years and all all the things that came along with that into the Reagan years. But somehow we just, we, you know, again, Western visual culture, especially, have lost our appetite for making the future look like the future. And that doesn't mean to retread all the stuff from the 70s that looks like the future, because when that stuff was made, it was new. It wasn't a rehash of the 70s because it was the 70s. So, you know, even, even this renewed interest in what I think is still massively future forward visual and architectural style brutalism, even that, it's just this overtones of nostalgia to it that sometimes turn me off. And I think, you know, there, there's a new, new brutalism or there's a new, new kind of future forward way of thinking about politics and way of thinking about visual and design culture that we haven't found yet. And nobody seems to be really trying too hard. I, I know the answer. Yeah. It's right in front of you. Parametricism. Oh, <laughs> I was hoping somebody else would say because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know that's the solution for everything so i was i, I graduated for, i finished a grad school at my mark in 2006 and so um and i was at yale so we were we were there right it was like, i was there man um and then i went to la and i was i was uh hanging out with a lot of people who had just finished at ucla and at syrac so that stuff was exciting and it's still exciting and it's been a lot of that kind of work has been recuperated by, again, conservative politics almost immediately before it even had a chance to kind of build up its own sort of social and political regime or narrative. It got immediately co-opted. And that's 
that's really a shame. I mean, the the roots of a lot of that kind of work are in you know, radical revolutionary Russian art, and I think that that changeover in um, at Zaha Hadid Architects from a studio led by Zaha, who was who was there, who she was there for that, you know, not for the not for suprematism and constructivism, but she was there for the first round of reinterest in that in the seventies, right? And it's kind of radical potential at the, at the genesis, not the genesis, but it, in the development of parametricism, there really was that optimism that new forms could create new ways of living. And that sense of possibility and potential got totally shut down. It's gone. So hey, Fred, um, you know, one of the things that came to mind when, um, when I was reading the, um, uh, the write-up today that you posted about the the review of your book, and I don't know why I didn't think about this sooner, but uh, <laughs> leave it to Minnesota to be on the cutting edge of just about everything that's going on that needs to go <laughs> right states, in this country. It is. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're there um, with the 2040 plan, which I will hardly support. So they're they're changing uh, the thinking about how we uh, look at our city. There's a new transportation plan in the Twin Cities, right? I think I saw that today. They. In the 1960s, they were looking at the Minnesota Experimental City, and uh, Buckminster Fuller was on their panel. They were really committed to investing about $10 billion into creating a city out in the exurbs here in the the Twin Cities that was going to be radically altering about and thinking about how we how we lived as a as an urban as an urban community. And when you look at a lot of the images, they are I mean, it's kind of remarkable. I I didn't catch it. I mean, I didn't know about this. I mean, I'm not from Minnesota. And then it it Hmm. has uh, there's been this resurgence, I think, probably within the last year. But what's striking about the images is it looks like Bjarka's or no, no, uh, Heather Wick. Was it Heather Wick? It was Heather Wick and, and Bjarka that did the Google HQ. It looks exactly like that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's stunning. I mean, it just, I look at it and I go, well, that's, that's what, <laughs> I mean, I, what, how, how are those, I mean, some of those things, some of those ideas were right around the, the same time. I mean, Carcassanti has been around forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other ideas about these kind of utopian places and in, in architecture, did those actually manifest or at least in, help inform, or at least were these scientists even thinking about that? Or was there any kind of crossover in that area? Yeah, I think one part of the historical story that became really a driver for me as I was putting the book together was the realization that that the best critics of this work were the two painters themselves. They, without really talking about it explicitly or telling anybody, they made work that was deeply embedded in the utopian, visionary, urban and architectural culture of of really the, the 60s. The the two painters were um, were both kind of hippies, you know, at the time. Um, they were both super young while they were working on this stuff. And they had these these really complicated, interesting backgrounds. Don Davis got to start being an illustrator for planetary science as a field, which was a new field at the time. So he's really invested in thinking about how do I really paint another world that has nothing to do with humans? And how do I represent that? And so that kind of sensibility made it into his paintings for the project. And at the same time, he was, as a kind of you know person invested in the counterculture, he was living in group houses and reading the Whole Earth Catalog and reading a lot of these DIY design publications and reading architecture magazines for reference. 
And so he's populating his paintings with what for the time would have been a really cool mix of radical architecture and things like Bucky Domes, Googie architecture from the sort of LA vernacular style, the California vernacular style. But also there's little hints of like Drop City, you know, the communes where people were building the domes out of repurposed car hoods, you know, using the sheet metal to build a Bucky Dome or a Zome, which is a slightly different geometric configuration. So those show up in the paintings that Don's making. And Rick Goodis, he had been and and is an architect. And, and so that's where his background was. He worked as a graphic artist, um, creating illustrations for magazine ads and things like that. So he knew what architects know about how you have to make the rendering, sell the job, sell, sell the project. And he's also using this, this project as a chance to try out, you know, he's designing his own mega structure for the interior of the Stanford Taurus. And he's thinking about things like repeatability of the sort of modules or panels and frames, but also individuality. How can you make a regular system look individualized and different and welcoming to many different kinds of people? So he's designing that in his paintings. And of course, you know, the, the, uh, at least this is how I picture it. NASA, the, the engineers and other uh, disciplines that work on the project, they just want to show me a painting of the interior. Okay, it's going to look something like this here. I'll make a sketch on graph paper, uh, make it look like this. And they have the chance to pretty much do whatever they want. But what they did was really, was really kind of critical and really, I think, much more nuanced than anybody had a right to expect. And there was another architect uh, named Pat Hill, who was a member of the team that helped translate between the engineering cultures and these two painters. You know, he would take those sketches on graph paper and sort of flesh them out and be like, okay, yeah, this is the kind of thing. And this is how the system works. And you go for it. But both of them knew that, hey, it's not going to even look this good. So let's make it look at least provocative. Let's design, let's, let's paint the south of France because we know they're not going to build the south of France, a French village, French countryside in um, this super expensive multi-trillion dollar space habitat. So they were aware of what they were doing. And I think that comes through in a close read of, of the work. So you, meant, you mentioned, Fred, a little earlier in the conversation that within 100 years or so, you think this might, we might be living out, right? We might be out there. Well, who's, who's we? That's the question. <laughs> yeah. Where do you think that this would most likely start? And if it did, would you go? Would you go live somewhere floating around in a Taurus or on Mars? Not permanently, no. I would love to go visit, but... I wouldn't want to stay there. I like weather too much. I like even not knowing. We just got through a heat wave in Baltimore. It was, you know, heat, heat indexes over 110 for like two days. And that's dangerous. So I like people, but, but the, the uncertainty of it, you know, the, the sort of the stuff, the certain uncertainty of it, the certainty that something's going to happen. You don't know quite what or when, you know, the fun, something like a thunderstorm, which might roll through any minute here now. So that might disrupt our sound. But I imagine uh, that there's some uncertainty living in <laughs> outer space, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, but somebody's got to specify everything. Somebody's got, if there's a thunderstorm, it's got to be on somebody's spreadsheet and schedule somewhere. Apollo 13 is the anomaly. <laughs> We're really, they're mostly going to be going to be everything contained and controlled. There's gonna We're going to have to rely on general contractors to get us the weather. <laughs> That's, That's fucking great. Thanks, Fred. No, as a, as a you know, as somebody who works at a university, we're going to have to rely on a committee. Ken, there'll be there'll be a thunderstorm committee. <laughs> oh sure, now you're turning into a, a thunder, a, a meager little thunderstorm into a, a category ten hurricane somewhere. 
<laughs> right. When you get a committee but, involved. But the reality of the question, it, is That's it, great. do you see it as romantic, Fred, or do you see it as sort of a necessary evil or? I see it as romantic and, and great. And I, 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 I maybe three days out of the week, two days out of the week, I'm undecided. And the other two, I think it's going to be a disaster. I, I think, I mean, there's one certainty and you mentioned Apollo 13, billions of people will die. And I think that is, that is part of the complicated nature of, of designing worlds. Nobody knows how to do it. And anybody who tries to do it is, you can say one thing for certain is they're going to get it wrong. Even if they get it right later, I mean, scheduling a thunderstorm would be the best case scenario, right? That, that would be, that would be a great day if, if everything just goes off without a hitch. And, and we can specify to that we, again, I keep trying to train myself out of the habit of using that in an unqualified way, but the ability to specify all those factors safely that make a world and organize them in a way that turns out to be the best possible scenario for the greatest amount of future humans would be the best case. But as designers, the only, the only way anyone knows how to do that is to get it wrong, try again and get it wrong and try again. And that's a million Apollo 13s that don't, you know, that don't have Tom Hanks aboard and that don't, that don't end up as a happy ending with about the powers of duct tape because duct tape is not going to save you in, in a system this complex. Yeah, exactly. No, realistically. Yeah. You know, to think about this planet and all the things that how interconnected you get rid of one thing yeah, and that thing that you're getting rid of that pest that you want to get rid of is actually the food source for another thing. Yeah. That is a, is a thing that it, it keeps an ecosystem together. So I, it, the, something just happened very well on this planet. The circumstances were just right for everything to go wrong and right at the same time. And well, that's what kind of the, that's that was my point earlier is that, you know, there's these hard discussions that we're not willing to have for the benefit. I mean, that is going to benefit people that aren't even here yet. And those things need to be talked about because we're not going to be here to talk about them. Right. And it's just mind boggling that we can't we can't see our way forward to, to actually have a real honest discussion about what is our purpose here on this planet, if not to propagate the species, if that is what we intend to do. I mean, I, I've often said I really I mean, what makes us think we're so special that we can't become extinct? I mean, where do we get off? Where do we get off believing that we're somehow the the prime rulers of this planet just because we happen to um happen to be in this right circumstance i mean there's no thing there's nothing saying that we have to be here on the other hand that is a, a really common line of argument that's deployed to say this is why some at least some segment of humanity has to go to space because you know, and again in this this line of argument the surface of a planet is, is way too fragile and way too contingent to Contingent to a lot of things, contingent to our own sort of purposeful or accidental human self-destruction. We might have, we might start a nuclear war. We might create out of control climate crisis or uh, accidental, totally, you know, act of God quotes, call it what you like, but the collision of an, of an asteroid that might be something at scale or even larger scale, something like what killed the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. So there's the hedge or bets or eggs and baskets, you know, as if, as if planets are baskets and, and humans are eggs. There are those arguments too, but I'm always amazed to see the, um, the cavalier dismissal of writers like Rachel Carson in this work. And there's, there's another part in Gerard O'Neill's congressional testimony 
where he talks about how these habitats will eventually be nature preserves to prevent you know, not only humans, but other endangered species from going extinct. And I can't believe he doesn't even say her name. That, that's what that's what gets me. I'm just realizing this. He says he says deliberately, like endangered birds can survive up there. And he says, we, and we won't need pesticides, which is exactly the whole. That's exactly what Silent Spring is. And millions of people read that book when it came out in 1962. And he doesn't even say her name. And if you're going to dismiss a body of work like Rachel Carson's so cavalierly, then you don't, you, Gerard O'Neill, don't have the right to design a world. There's no, no space, no space settlement without Rachel Carson. Sorry. No, I totally agree. That's great. <laughs> Ken? Two questions? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Is, oh, is this getting boring, guys? Is it me asking these two questions boring? No, not at all. They're the best sure? two questions. Yes. <laughs> okay. They totally are. <laughs> Fred, what are you reading or what are you listening to these days? So I'm still I'm still neck deep in stuff from the 60s and 70s reading wise. I'm working on a follow up project and I'm, I'm still reading speculative <laughs> social and uh, architectural work about outer space from the from the 1960s and earlier people like jd bernal who who was a material scientist in, in britain and helped with uh, uh with the world war ii effort even though he was a pacifist and marxist people like uh alexander bogdanov who's a russian cosmist um weird uh scientist experimenter with like early blood transfusion and also thinking about um how alternate societies could be built in space and what that might mean for the future of something like the Russian Revolution as an ongoing radical project in a way that it didn't turn out in real life. So it's boring stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's not boring stuff. I think it's fascinating stuff because the older weird stuff is even weirder than the newer weird stuff, I think. I just finished a little bit ago and the newer weird stuff, a great uh, fiction book by Rachel Armstrong, who's an architect uh, in the UK, I think she's at Newcastle, who's invested in living architecture and living systems that work with buildings. And she's written this uh, really bizarre, really fascinating book called Origami that's about alternate histories and alternate futures of, of humans living in space, but living with all this messy stuff. And in fact, you depend on the messy stuff. So her work is really fascinating. And that's work that really does feel like the future because it feels like nothing you've ever seen before. As far as what I'm listening to, I, I don't know. I'm, I tend to just put on more and more drone and noise music. There's a, I might have mentioned this before, there's an internet radio station called The Drone Zone that, that is really helpful for writing because it's really, it's the kind of thing that, um, I mean, who was it, uh, Brian Eno, who said that music should be like furniture. You know, if you, you should be able to look at it and ignore it or look at it and go, oh, that's a pretty nice chair. This is that, only it's like dark, spooky furniture. My wife keeps saying, like, this feels like I live in a mystery novel. Like, I'm not allowed to play it when she's in the room. But I really, it really helps with writing because it really gets you in the mood to think about complicated, uh, complicated questions and complicated features. Yeah, I saw a post last week or this weekend. Somebody posted a, um, there's somebody who's programmed an AI, some musicians who programmed an AI to take Coltrane and do 24 hours of jazz based off of wow. Coltrane's music. Wow. It's pretty, it's pretty insane. I mean, I listen to it. I'm going, I'm like, yeah, I don't know a lot about Coltrane, but this sounds like Coltrane, okay. like on like four tabs of acid. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
I know we just did the last two questions, but I just want to ask this too. Fred, are you you're teaching again in the fall? And are you are your teaching is your teaching going to be focused on topics similar to to the book? It it is, but in in a complicated and I hope you know maybe more interesting way than if I was just teaching a studio on space architecture or something like that. I mean, there are plenty of there are great studios on space architecture at, at Pratt and at other um, places, but I've been really lucky to have fallen into a pattern where I teach beginning design. So. So the question of like, what does the production of space, what are the essential questions when the production of space comes to mind and, and comes to be something that we have to do and how can we make it, make it new, but learn from critical frameworks of the past that is really forefront in my mind. And that's the kind of thing that I like to try to, to get students excited about as an entry point into, into architecture and design. The idea that everything that everything that exists is somebody else's sort of science fiction project that just happened to align with other things and happened to be something that was politically, economically, socially feasible or desirable to actually produce at the time. So I, I found that that's one interesting way to get to get students excited about um, design is to is to think about it as speculative science fictional futurism, future studies. It's all optimism, right? It's all based in optimism. It's all, yes, you have to be yes. optimistic to design have, something. You have to be. Yeah. Exactly. Yep, that's exactly it. The other, the, the other major two things I, I like to teach are urban design and environmental controls, which I think are, you know, I've come to realize are, um, are the, the edges of architecture at scale, you know, at the scale of the room or at the scale of, you know, the, the space suit. Um, is environmental control and all those things that we don't think of as being visual are still nevertheless design. And urban design is more than just putting a lot of buildings, you know, together in the same place as we know. But those have been, for me, really fruitful arenas to work out through teaching and, and with students how to how to connect the things that usually fall outside of what we think of as architectural concerns back to Concerns that are nevertheless relevant to a certain bigger design questions, um, and I think, and both of those things were entry points to me for critical frameworks for looking at this work from the 1970s because it is urban design, you know, to the nth degree, and it is also environmental controls, like control control of every aspect, even the gravity, you know, becomes uh, possible. And thinking about what that means, so teaching all that together has has really been productive for me and to work with students who are thinking through those things too, has been wonderful. So you mentioned that there's a bunch of books uh, coming to our part of the, uh, of this planet on a boat. What do you think is the best way for our listeners to order your book right now to get it as, uh, as quickly as possible? Yeah. So it's available at Columbia university press um, and Columbia books and architecture in the city. If you look, if you just look up, look up space settlements there, you'll find it. But also if you want to give Jeff Bezos some more money and, and help him, build his cities in space, you can go to amazon.com or you can ask and best of all maybe is to is to ask your local architecture design bookseller to uh, stock the book and we'll be happy to send them some via container ship or via um, airdrop directly from orbit. Well, I have not had the book long enough to read it all, but it, it is just a, a, a 
pleasure looking at the the images which i've done uh thoroughly so far so this is a great book for a coffee table and on the nightstand so i heavily recommend picking this book up thanks so much for giving us a little bit of a backstory behind behind this book and talking about it uh today for our listeners and it's it's always a pleasure having you on the show fred thanks y'all for the invitation i always love joining you all. it's great talking with you fred thanks Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Fred Sharman. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.